quote, megachurch founder resigns after behaving inappropriately with two women. Quote, pastor is accused of rape by a staffer that he had an affair with prior to him and his wife being fired for using church donations to fund their lavish lifestyle. Quote, a famous church shames and excommunicates a mother for refusing to take back her pedophile husband who abused her child while the child financially supported the abuser in prison. Those are the first three headlines I found involving churches this week. If we conducted this same search the other 51 weeks of the year, tragically we would find similar stories because scandals like these happen in big churches and small churches, in evangelical churches and mainline churches, in Protestant churches and Roman Catholic churches. The truth is, friends, church scandals don't seem particularly scandalous to most people anymore. They're the sort of news that we expect because they happen so frequently. And as a result, many unbelievers feel justified in writing off Christianity and the church. But if you love Christ, you are seriously affected when you see this tidal wave of filth. It is demoralizing. It makes us sad. It makes us angry, especially if you live through one of these scandals, especially if you've been hurt by one or more of them. And if that's our response when we hear about these sort of things, imagine what the Lord Jesus thinks about them. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. He intends his church to be holy and pure. And so he intends the leaders of his church to lead well in holiness and godliness and not to revel in sin and corruption. That's what we're going to discuss this morning as we continue our study in the first letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. If you've got a Bible today, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. And this is basically the last section in 1 Timothy that contains principles related to church leadership. And today we're going to revisit the topic of the church's primary leaders, the elders. And in today's passage, Paul is going to explain how the congregation, the church members, should relate to its elders. And we're going to see this in three points. First, we're going to see how the church should relate to its elders who do a good job. Second, we'll see how the church should relate to its elders who are accused of sinful misconduct. And third, we're going to see how these principles should shape our church's process for recognizing elders. Let's start with our first point. How should the church relate to its elders who do a good job? Paul's writing to his friend Timothy, who is helping lead the church at Ephesus. And we're in a section of this letter in which Paul is talking to Timothy about how Timothy needs to interact, interact with various parts of the church community. And beginning in verse 17, Paul tells Timothy how he must interact with the church's leaders. And Paul calls these leaders the elders. Now, we talked about elders a few weeks ago back in chapter 3. And let me remind you what we said there. 
Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus has supreme rightful authority over every local church. And Jesus has ordained that local churches should be governed not by a single pastor, but by a group of elders who collectively discharge the oversight and pastoral ministry of the church. These elders must be men, according to 1 Timothy 2. And they must meet certain qualifications related to their character, their family, and their spiritual gifts. We find these in 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, same office as the elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Each local church is to recognize a number of men who meet these qualifications to serve as its elders. Now, let's learn a bit more about the elders as we pick up now in chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Before we look at the command here, I want you to notice two things. First, the elders rule. The Greek verb means to give leadership, direction, or management. It's a verb Paul uses a few times to talk about what church elders do. They rule over the church. Now, not in an absolute sense, because Christ is the head of the church. His word alone is final. Local church elders must lead in line with Christ's word, the Bible, or else their leadership is invalid and ought to be rejected by the congregation. But make no mistake, the elders must lead. You know, nowadays there's this idea that it's bad to have leadership in the church because there have been many abuses of power and because there's this general sentiment that the church ought to be a free-for-all, loose-knit country club association where people can come whenever they like and they can believe whatever they like and they can act however they like. Friends, that is not biblical. Christ intends his local church to be ordered and governed, to have clear direction an authoritative leadership that reflects his word, and this is to come from the elders. If the elders fail to lead, if we fail to communicate to the church, this is who we are, and this is what we believe, and this is how we conduct ourselves, what will happen to us? What happens to any flock of sheep when the shepherds disappear? Sheep go astray. They all go their own way, and they're all vulnerable to wolves. That's not Christ's intent for the church. The elders rule in obedience to Christ. Second, notice that Paul expects that elders in the local church will rule well. It's easy in our cynical age to write every church leader off as a hypocritical fraud. But Paul's expectation is that church leaders should rule well. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about elders ruling well? 
we see Paul's expectations for leaders in chapter 4. They should set an example for other believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. They must personally hold to the truth. Titus 1 says, they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. They must teach what is true and expose what is false. They must set an example to the church of service, of godliness, of godly family leadership. As elders, we must give careful, prayerful, scriptural oversight to every matter brought before us, and we've got to always strive to excel still further in all of these areas. Friends, that is what good church leadership is. And it's more prevalent than you might think. Yes, there are bad apples, and there are lots of them, but there are also many church leaders who are doing a good job. But good leaders don't get the press. Satan and the world only want us to see the guys who behave badly. Friends, don't let the world's agenda skew your perspective. There are good church leaders out there. And by God's grace, I believe the men I'm serving with here are ruling well. Heaven knows I want to rule well too. So what should a church do when it has leaders who rule well? Paul says they're worthy of double honor. What's he mean? Does he mean that we should respect our elders? Well, we read that elsewhere. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, Brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Church leaders who rule well are entitled to our respect and love. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Church leaders who rule well are entitled to us not causing unnecessary problems for them. Church leaders who rule well, who are ruling in line with the Bible, they're entitled to our obedience. So we should love, respect, and obey church leaders who rule well. But Paul has something even more in mind here when he talks about honoring them doubly. He means the same thing that he meant back in verse 3 of this chapter when he said, honor widows. We saw last week that what Paul meant by that was the church was to financially compensate certain widows. And here in verse 17, the honor Paul is talking about is again the payment of money. Elders who rule well should be compensated for their service. In fact, Paul makes this clear in the next verse, verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul quotes two passages here. First is Deuteronomy 25, which said that oxen were not to be muzzled when they were treading grain. Instead, they were allowed to eat while they worked, and they ate from the fields that they labored in. Paul quotes this verse here and in 1 Corinthians 9. And in both places, he uses this verse to make a point about financially compensating church leaders. If a leader is working diligently among a congregation, he is entitled to benefit materially from it. That's the first quotation Paul uses. The second is, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, Paul says that this statement is from the Scripture. And ordinarily, when he says that, we would think this comes from the Old Testament. But that's actually not the case here. This quotation is not in the Old Testament. Where is it from? 
Well, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's about to send them on a mission trip through Judea. And Jesus says to his disciples as they go out, they're going to find friendly people who will host and feed them. And Jesus says, accept that benevolence because, verse 7 of Luke 10, the laborer deserves his wages. And Paul knows this saying of Jesus, or maybe he's read Luke's gospel, and now he quotes it, and he quotes it as scripture. Friends, this tells us from the very earliest days of the church, the words of Christ and the gospel of Luke were regarded as scripture just like the Old Testament was. And what Paul does here is he quotes both Deuteronomy and Jesus, and he shows us that God's word in both Testaments declares that those who proclaim the gospel have a right to financially benefit by their labor. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, the elders who rule well are not just entitled to respect, but to some form of tangible monetary support. And not only are all of the elders who rule well entitled to this, But Paul says in verse 17, this is particularly true of those who labor in preaching and teaching. Every elder must have the gift of teaching, 1 Timothy 3 says. But usually within a local church, one or two of the elders have the brunt of the responsibility of teaching. And Paul says those elders are particularly meritorious of financial support. Now in this church, I'm the elder who has been tasked with carrying the brunt of the teaching. And you guys have dealt very, very generously towards me and my family. We thank you very earnestly for that. You have indeed accorded me double or even triple honor, and and I thank you for that very much. But looking at verse 17, we might wonder what should we do for our other elders who rule well. Are they entitled to something too? And I think the biblical answer is yes. Now, I don't think that this means that everyone who serves as an elder is entitled to a livable wage from the church. But being an elder is not, strictly speaking, volunteer work. There should be some tangible expression of honor from the church to the elders who rule well. Now, historically here, we've tried to give effect to this by giving a nice tangible gift to our elders who finish their three-year term of office in good standing. So when Brian stood down, I think we gave him a pretty nice gift card to a pretty nice restaurant, as I recall. And it's important that we either continue that tradition or figure out some alternative way to give effect to Paul's instruction here because every elder who rules well is entitled to some tangible benefit from the church. This is how we treat our elders well, with our love and our esteem, with our obedience when they tell us what the Bible tells us and by saying thank you to them for their service, tangibly and in other ways. I would just urge you guys today, say thanks to Marv and Daniel. And they work really hard, and they're doing a great job. They deserve your encouragement in their labor. But now we come to the second point. And now we're going to talk about elders who are accused of sinful misconduct. It would be lovely if every church leader always ruled well, And if every congregant always appreciated that. But that's not reality. Sometimes elders sin. Sometimes congregants mistakenly believe that elders have sinned when they haven't. Sometimes congregants slander elders by inventing false allegations of sin. So allegations, true and false, sometimes arise against elders. How should the church handle these allegations? Paul says in verse 19, 
do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. There are four principles here. First, elders are entitled to procedural protections. In our society, historically, people were regarded as innocent until proven guilty. That's no longer the case. Now we are told, believe everyone who claims to have been victimized and condemn anyone who is accused of anything before any proof is produced. The problem with this new approach is it can lead to terribly unjust outcomes. By removing safeguards for accused people, it's very easy to wreck the life of someone that you don't like just by lying about them. But God is not okay with the abandonment of procedural safeguards for accused people. And we know that because God provided much higher procedural safeguards to protect accused people in the Bible than we even find in our world today. And that's the case not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. Paul's reference to two or three witnesses here comes from Deuteronomy 19. Sal read a little bit ago. Let's read it again. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, both the priests and judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Here God tells Israel how to administer criminal justice. And God says don't start a criminal trial unless a charge is substantiated by multiple witnesses. And God created this rule because he knows people are wicked and sometimes we falsely accuse each other. Jesus adopted this same high standard for situations in which the church has to act as a disciplinary court. Matthew 18, 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus says when we know that a brother or sister has sinned, we should deal with it privately first. But if they refuse to repent, the process escalates. And ultimately, it can become a matter that the whole church has to address. But the whole church cannot get involved until one or two witnesses come forward who are able to substantiate the charge. So again, we see the Bible is protecting accused people until a charge is established by multiple witnesses. And here in 1 Timothy 5, we find this same rule is again employed when church elders are accused of wrongdoing. 
One person's unsubstantiated accusation cannot form the basis of a church proceeding to judge whether an elder has sinned. And church members, you must not listen to or receive as credible any unsubstantiated accusation against an elder. If someone tries to spread a rumor like that to you, you need to ask for the evidence. And if there is none, regard it as malicious gossip, rebuke whoever is spreading it, and please come and tell the elders. God does not want to see people railroaded by false allegations and deceitful rumors in the church. You know, church leaders are particularly susceptible to this sort of thing because they are visible leaders, and visible people are just more likely to be targets of slander. Moreover, church leaders sometimes have to teach unpopular doctrines and confront people who are guilty of sin, and so church leaders wind up having enemies often who want to bring us down. And it's not hard to bring down a church leader. Because a church leader's position is entirely predicated upon the trust of the church. And it's easy to destroy that trust through slanderous gossip. And so without protections like what Paul demands here, it would be very easy for someone with evil intentions to bring down any church leader who has done nothing wrong simply by telling one lie. And Paul wants to make sure that doesn't happen. And so Paul requires that this evidentiary standard is met before the church receives an accusation. Now, I want to say two more things here. First, it's a lot easier to prove someone's wrongdoing today than it was in Paul's time. You know, we've got cameras everywhere today, right? We've all got phones that can record stuff. And I think photographic or documentary evidence qualifies as a witness to meet the standard Paul sets down here. I don't think Paul's concern here is primarily that there have to be multiple direct eyewitnesses to an allegation, but rather, are there multiple pieces of credible evidence that substantiate the allegation? If so, then the church must address it. Second, and this is really important, we need to remember that if multiple pieces of credible evidence stand behind an allegation, that's only the start of the process, not the end. Just because we have two witnesses telling us the same story does not mean that it's true. We would do well to remember 1 Kings 21. There, Queen Jezebel conspires with two evil men to trump up a false charge against a man named Naboth so that he would be put to death and Jezebel and her husband could take his property. Sometimes, evil people work together to spread lies. So I don't want us to read this verse and think, well, this means if there are multiple witnesses, then a charge must be true. No, if there are multiple witnesses, then an inquiry must begin. But in Deuteronomy 19, God told Israel judge, Israelite judges not just to require multiple witnesses before starting a case, but also to inquire diligently about the charges brought before them and where to do that too. Now to be sure, the church is not a police force. But when disciplinary charges are made against any person, leader, or member, it is the elder's duty to make sure that we make inquiries into the situation, that we talk to everyone involved, and that we examine the evidence to see if it's genuine or not. So we only consider a charge against an elder if these procedural safeguards are met. Second, the elder who is found guilty must receive a penalty. Now before we discuss the penalty, I want to say this. Church elders are not sinlessly perfect. 
I sin. More of sins. Daniel sins. We have not yet been glorified. We still struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we fail more than we would like in thought, word, and deed. And in this, we are like every other member of this church and Christian on the planet. Church elders are required to meet the qualifications we read earlier in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus 1. These qualifications are the sort of things that every ordinary Christian should do. What distinguishes the elder is not the difficulty of the qualifications, but rather the consistency that the elder should have in meeting those qualifications. The standard Paul establishes is that the elders must be above reproach in these areas. And again, this cannot mean sinlessly perfect, but it does mean generally the elder's current life should be free from obvious defects in the areas of the qualifications. But if elders are not sinlessly perfect, if we do fail at times in various ways, when do we cease to be above reproach? When are we disqualified from office? It's a very important question, and Paul does not answer it directly here, so various answers have been proposed. Some folks think that Paul intends discipline to fall upon an elder for every sin that arises in an elder's life. When you read these folks, it really does sound like they are expecting sinless perfection, which would, again, disqualify everyone on earth. And if we have to publicly rebuke every elder every week for every foolish thought, word, or deed that we speak, this service is going to have to get a lot longer. So I don't think that interpretation is correct. Other people, including many translation committees of modern versions of the Bible, notice that the Greek words used in verse 20 to describe the sinning elders are present tense participles. In Greek, the present tense often suggests ongoing action. That's why these committees have chosen to translate Paul's words here as those who persist in sin. I did a lot of research into this grammatical question this week, and I have to tell you, I think that is overstating what Paul says here, which is literally those who sin, not those who persist in sin. We will see in a moment that persistent, unrepentant sin is a reason to penalize an elder, but I don't think Paul is saying that is the only sort of sin that merits a penalty. So when does an elder's sin rise to the level of disqualification? I think there are four situations which are in view. The first two situations can be derived from the context of this passage. First, consider the contrast between verse 17 and 19. Verse 17 speaks of rewarding elders who rule well. Verse 19 speaks of rebuking other elders. Should we not expect that the elders who are publicly rebuked are those who do not rule well? Perhaps they are lazy in attending to their duties. Perhaps they abuse their office or try to lead the church in a manner contrary to the scriptures. Elders who lead sinfully are guilty and disqualified from office. Of course, we all make mistakes, but I'm talking here about the misuse and abuse of the office. Second, consider the broader context of this book. Paul writes 1 Timothy because the Ephesian church is beset by heresy. The elders that Paul wants Timothy to rebuke here are likely to be elders who have either taught or tolerated false doctrine. In the same way, then, if we have elders who recant the church's teaching statement, 
or who teach contrary to the gospel, they are guilty and disqualified from office. Two further situations can be derived from other biblical passages that describe church discipline. The third situation comes from Matthew 18. There again, Jesus prescribes a lengthy process that seeks to correct a believer for any sort of sin. The process ends at any point when the person acknowledges and turns from his sin. But the process continues to escalate if the person is guilty and refuses to acknowledge it or turn from it. And Jesus says this process can escalate to the point where the whole church has to cast someone out of the congregation. Now what Matthew 18 tells us is that any sin may become the basis for discipline if a person lives in it unrepentantly. Now, when I say that, sometimes we all start to fret and think, what does unrepentance mean? Unrepentance is not periodic sin. We all fail sometimes, and in some seasons we fail more than in other seasons. It's not just failure. The issue is how do we respond to our sin? Do we recognize our wrong and confess it to God and to whomever we've harmed? Do we take steps to war against our sin? Or do we rationalize it and saying, well, what I'm doing isn't a big deal and God's okay with it and I'm not going to change? It's that second situation that constitutes unrepentance and which merits corrective discipline. And that is especially the case if someone holds on to that position even after being repeatedly confronted. And if an elder adopts that position, he is no longer above reproach. I would say on the basis of Matthew 18, when you get to the point where an elder has refused to listen to two or three witnesses, at that point, it's ready for a church inquiry. And if the sin is proven before the church, the elder is disqualified from office. And if after he is disqualified from office, he still does not repent, then he becomes liable to the last stage of church discipline of Matthew 18, which would allow him to be kicked out of the church. Now, the fourth situation comes from 1 Corinthians 5. Here we've got a man in a church who is having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. That's gross to us today. It would have been viewed as totally shocking in the ancient world among both believers and unbelievers. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 is, if you have a particularly grotesque sin like that, you must put the person out of the church immediately without taking additional steps. Now, what kinds of sins does Paul have in mind here? He doesn't give us a list. They've got to be really grotesque. And to paraphrase a famous quote from the legal profession, we'll know it when we see it. But if an elder is guilty of this sort of sin, he must immediately lose his office because he's no longer above reproach. He must receive a public rebuke. And in this case, he should also be immediately excommunicated according to 1 Corinthians 5. To sum up, when an elder is guilty of ruling sinfully, teaching heresy, living in unrepentant sin, or committing some particularly grotesque sin, he is liable to what Paul describes here. And if two or three witnesses testify to his guilt in one of these four ways, this is what needs to happen. The accused elder should be suspended from his ministry duties while the charges are investigated by the other elders. A members meeting must be called. The charges and results of the investigation must be presented to the church's members. And in this church, we believe the congregation has final oversight over the elders. Because in Galatians 1, 
In 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, Paul tells churches they are to judge their teachers who are teaching false doctrine. So the elders are accountable to the congregation. And 2 Corinthians 2 tells us church discipline cases in the early church were handled by a congregational vote. So after evidence is presented at a member's meeting, the church's members would be asked to vote whether the elder is guilty or not guilty. And if two-thirds of the members voted guilty, he would be removed from office. And as Paul says here, he would be publicly rebuked. And that rebuke should come from one of the remaining elders. This may sound very harsh to us, but it's important if, God forbid, this happens, that we obey these commands. Because Christ's people have an absolute right to good governance, because Jesus died to win a pure bride, because the church needs to publicly distance itself from sin, because we are not a house of hypocrisy and we need to be a house of holiness, and we need to do this for the sake of the reputation of the gospel, to show that Jesus and his people are not okay with evil. We've also got to do this because we need to shake our believing or our sinning friend out of his spiritual slumber. We need him to see that his unrepentant sin is showing something is wrong. His soul may be in peril. And so this rebuke is actually a loving act designed to provoke him to repent and be restored to fellowship in the church. Now, this does not mean that he will be restored to leadership in the church. I have to say, I do think it's possible that a disqualified elder could become qualified again. But that takes a very, very long time to happen. Because trust is easy to lose and very hard to regain. And the eldership is all about having the trust of the congregation. So our primary concern in disciplining an elder is not to restore him to leadership. It is to restore him spiritually. Friends, I really want to urge you on this point. We don't want to just kick someone to the curb who we have known and loved who needs our spiritual help. He may have let us down. We need to get him out of office, but we also need to minister to him. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's what we need to do if he's receptive. Friends, hear me on this also. Only the guilty elder is disciplined. His family is not guilty. And they are to continue to receive love and help from the church. In fact, any person who sins against the innocent family members of a disciplined person should receive the most stringent discipline from the church. Finally, Paul says here that the rebuke which is administered to a sinning elder must happen before the congregation so that the rest may fear. This is to be an uncomfortable scene, and Paul says watching it would do us some good. Because sin flourishes by lying to us, saying, there are no consequences here. But God wants us to remember that there are. Let me specifically speak now to my brother elders and to those of you who may serve in this office someday. We need to see the awfulness of this procedure and fear now so that we will not transgress in these ways. Let us redouble our efforts in obedience. Let us keep short accounts with God. And be humble and quick to repent when we sin, especially if someone calls us out on it. Friends, we do not want to disqualify ourselves. The third principle that we see in these verses is that there is to also be a penalty against the church member who brings a false allegation against an elder. Our passage contains a number of references to Deuteronomy 19. 
two or three witnesses, a public penalty so that people may fear. Clearly, Paul's thinking about Deuteronomy 19 when he writes this. And a big part of Deuteronomy 19 is about protecting people from false accusations. So I think it's reasonable for us to look at Deuteronomy 19 to learn how we should deal with someone who brings a false allegation against an elder. It says, if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. Now, under the Old Testament law, if you acted as a false witness in a capital case saying, oh, I'm going to get him killed, you got killed. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. Now, of course, in the church, we don't carry out amputations or executions. But there's a principle here. If you slander an elder to try to get him publicly rebuked and put out of office, you should receive a similar penalty. First, a public rebuke. And second, I think this merits immediate excommunication. Because Deuteronomy 19 says, By punishing the false witness, thus you shall purge the evil from your midst, which is almost identical to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, about summarily excommunicating someone, purge the evil person from among you. So a false accusation against an elder merits public rebuke and immediate excommunication. Fourth, and this is so important, friends, Paul says the church must not reach its disciplinary conclusions by participating in the sin of partiality. Look at verse 21. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Partiality is playing favorites. James 2 says it's a huge sin in the church. And here Paul's worried when the church is called to act as a court and deal with disciplinary cases. People in the church might not judge the case on its merits. They might not look at the evidence. Instead, they might prejudge the case on who the parties are. Oh, I like this elder. I'm not going to listen to the charges. Oh, I don't like this elder. I'm going to vote guilty and get rid of him, no matter what. Oh, I like the accuser. I'm going to help her get rid of her enemy. Oh, I don't like the accuser. I hope he gets denounced as a false witness and is excommunicated. Friends, that kind of logic can have no place in any congregational vote, especially disciplinary votes. God demands that we act justly, and partiality is the opposite of justice. Now, this might seem obvious to us here today, and yet these rules are often jettisoned when churches actually have to deal with the painful disputes contemplated in this passage. Instead of deciding these things on the evidence, people decide them on the, how their friendships are going to be impacted and what their church political agendas are going to be. Paul says, that must not happen. As Timothy begins to clean up the Ephesian church and call its corrupt leaders to account, he needs to make sure the process is honest and just. So Paul charges Timothy with an extremely strong word in the Greek. It's a solemn exhortation that carries a threat you must do this, Paul says, or there will be consequences, Timothy. And who's going to carry out the consequences? Well, Paul says God the Father, the judge of all the earth who always does right. And Jesus Christ, to whom the Father has entrusted all judgment, who will judge the living and the dead. And the elect angels, the angels destined to remain loyal to God, who witness and execute God's judgment in many passages. And Paul says they will enforce this charge. Upon Timothy, or the Ephesian church, or every local church, including our church, if we handle disciplinary cases with partiality, we must judge on the merits. Our friendships and personal loyalties and ambitions dare not enter into this on pain of the judgment of God. We cannot be partial for or against any participant in any disciplinary case. We must judge only on the evidence. 
So those are Paul's instructions about how to handle accusations against an elder. Come now to our last point. How should the principles in this passage shape our church's recognition of elders? Look at verse 22. Paul says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Paul wants Timothy to remain pure. And when we think of purity, we usually only think about sex. But really, Paul here just wants Timothy not to incur guilt before God. And this seems to have been something that Timothy took really seriously. Most commentators think that it's Timothy's pursuit of purity that stands behind the next verse, which otherwise looks totally out of place in this passage. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy had digestive troubles. Often people say, well, that's because he drank water, and back then the water was dirty, and, and you know, he might have got disease. Maybe. Let me suggest another explanation. Timothy's stressed out. There are a lot of problems in the church. It's wearing him out. Friends, this is one aspect of church leadership you guys don't usually get to see. My wife sees it. The other elders get to see it in me. Sometimes it gets to them too. Now, praise God, we don't have a tenth of the problems Timothy had in the Ephesian church. But church stress can manifest itself physically. And maybe that's why Timothy's stomach is wrecked. And Paul wants him to feel better. So he says, drink a little wine. Standard medical advice in the ancient world for a troubled stomach. But Paul's concerned. Not only because Timothy is dealing with illness, but Paul uses an unusual Greek word here, which seems to indicate that Timothy only drank water to the exclusion of everything else. Maybe that's because he's zealous for purity and he thinks drinking alcohol might stumble him into sin. It's okay to think like that. Maybe it's because Timothy has been influenced by the heretical asceticism of the false teachers in his church. That would not be okay. And Paul doesn't want Timothy practicing an asceticism that isn't helping him spiritually and isn't helping him physically. So he says, Timothy, do what you've got to do to improve your health. There's an important principle here, which is that elders need to be careful not to destroy our health by our intense work for the church. We need to take care of ourselves and this is something I have not done well, which is why the other elders have graciously offered to grant me a sabbatical for part of the middle of next year to let me rest and tend to my health. Uh, health is an important priority for church leaders physically and also spiritually. And now Paul moves from the physical to the spiritual and he says, I'm also worried about your spiritual health, Timothy. And so this is what Paul says, be careful who you lay hands on. Now, when he says this, he's talking about the custom practiced in the ancient church, which we still do today. When a man becomes an elder, we lay hands on him. So Paul's saying to Timothy, be careful who you appoint as an elder. Because when you commission someone to become an elder, Paul says, there is a sense in which God may hold you responsible for how they use their office. And if you appoint someone who is unqualified or who abuses their office... Paul says here, you become a participant in their sins by giving them that office. This is hugely important for those of us who serve as elders. Because when this church appoints new elders, that process starts by our current elders making a nomination. We've got to be careful who we nominate, because if we get it wrong, we may incur guilt before God. But this is also important for our whole church. Because ultimately, it is our congregation who installs elders with a vote. We all have a share in determining who will have hands laid on them. When we nominate someone here, we give you guys four weeks to get to know them and to give us comments about it for you to do due diligence. Friends, we need you to participate in this process. And it's important that you do. 
Because all of us who participate in installing an elder may incur some measure of guilt before God if we fail to get to know them and wind up appointing someone who is not actually qualified. And so because of the threat of this shared guilt, Paul gives this caution to Timothy. Don't be hasty in appointing an elder. Don't be too quick to put someone in office. Take your time. Get to know them and watch them. Because there is great value in taking time to make this decision. Paul says in verse 24, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Sometimes the sins of men in the church are obvious. It's clear that some guys are not qualified to be elders. They're not living a life that's above reproach. And Timothy certainly shouldn't appoint anybody like that. Doing so would make him guilty in God's sight. But even if he doesn't appoint the person who has conspicuous sins, he might still incur guilt by hastily appointing someone else. Someone who initially appears to be safe, but who actually has disqualifying sins in his life, which are not immediately apparent, but which will reveal themselves later if he would just stop to get to know them. And if we are hasty in appointing an elder, if we appoint someone before we really know them, we may miss some issue in their life that would have told us we shouldn't give them office in the first place, and we become liable to the guilt Paul's talking about. So it's good to be slow in this process. And it's not only because we might miss someone's disqualifying sins, but also because if we are hasty in appointing someone to the eldership, we might wrongly overlook someone else in the congregation who actually should be appointed. Look at verse 25. He says, So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are, uh, that are not cannot remain hidden. You know, sometimes there are people in the church whose lives are so full of good works, it's easy to commend them to serve immediately. But sometimes there are people we might not think of right away, but who over the passage of time begin to distinguish themselves by sincere good deeds. And so there is great advantage in being slow in this process because that protects us from appointing people who look safe but actually aren't, and it might give us time to discover people who we might not initially think about but who over the course of time show themselves to be qualified. So we need to take our time in appointing elders. Let me conclude. I know when we talk about discipline, it's heavy. Friends, discipline is heavy and painful, not because God is sadistic and wants us to do unpleasant things. It's heavy and painful because sin is so terrible, evil, and destructive. And dealing with entrenched sin is particularly hard work. Today, I want to say to you, if you have never come to Christ, you are a slave of sin. You are under the wrath of God. A much worse fate than public rebuke awaits you. You are in a collision course with the fury of God. Repent and cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. If you do belong to Jesus, remember he died to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus wants us to be pure. Jesus wants me to be pure and you to be pure. He wants us to war against our sin. If you've got no interest in that, if you're content to live however you want, disregarding God's word, be warned. God is not playing games. Maybe you've got that attitude because you're not really saved. You remain under judgment. Or maybe you are saved, but you're not living like it. Friend, if that's you, I'd say you might not like the idea of church discipline, but you may well get something worse. There is something worse than church discipline. There's divine discipline. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the discipline of sickness and death. Friends, let us not incur that. Let us turn from our known sin. Jesus at the cross has liberated us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, and he has enabled us to enjoy victory. 
And someday our victory will be total. But right now what he wants is for us to strive to walk in obedience to him. When we fall down, he promises if we cleanse our sins, or if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, we're not to use that truth as a license for sin. It should invite us to war against sin all the more for our own sake and the sake of our corporate witness. So I leave you with this today. 1 Peter 4. It's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God?